let's pray to God and ask for his help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we have sung in this God-given psalm something of uh, your kingly splendor. So as we gather, you sit upon your heavenly throne, majestic, all-powerful, and you are aware of everything there is to know about us. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would just not observe us, but that in these moments you would address us as our King, that through your word that you would speak in power and speak to your subjects, your people, that we might lift up our voices at the end of this in adoration of King Jesus. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last uh, week as we begun our sermon, indeed our sermon series, uh, we did so by summarizing, if you can remember and you can recall, we began by summarizing something of what constitutes the gospel message. Uh, can you remember? There was that summary of the gospel. Though we have rebelled against God, and we have received something of a sinful nature, what has God done? But he has provided a savior for his people in the person of his son. Through the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus, there is reconciliation and reconciliation with God, the gospel. But that salvation does not automatically come to all people, does it? We know this. So how is it that a person appropriates Christ and all of his benefits? What is the required response from people to Jesus and to his saving work? What's the required response here? Well, this morning, as we uh, continue our series, we come to a, a section where through this, this child being promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth. What happens is really and truly a new age dawns in this section, doesn't it? And God begins. He starts to fulfill some of his promises about a savior. And as we study these things, what I think is going to come into quite sharp focus is that necessary response to Jesus Christ in his saving work. I wonder if you get that. What we're going to see here as we work through this is that for a person to be saved, there must be, listen carefully, repentance and belief. There must be. There must be this turning in disgust from our sin. And there must be a turning to God and a turning to him in faith. These essential elements of the gospel and a response to it. Now, the plan is, is rather predictable, if I'm honest, <clears throat> certainly straightforward. We are going to work through this section from verse 5 to verse 25, and we'll work through it sequentially. So we'll start at the top, and we'll end at the tail. We'll work through it in order, 
but we'll not do it in our sort of conventional headings, if you like. There will be no alliteration whatsoever this morning. Instead, what we will do is we'll work through this section under terms. So our headings really will constitute simply terms that will form our journey through the text. And so can I ask you, if you have a copy of the Bible, to please turn there, your phone, a copy of Scripture that you've taken with you. Let's look together. If you don't have a Bible, it's fine in a sense. What we'll do is we'll try and draw up some of the verses on the screen uh, behind me. But if you look to Luke, and the first term that I want us to, to wrestle with is that of godliness. So that's the first term to set us off is the term godliness that we see here. Now, if you were here uh, in the church last Sunday, I think the beginning of this section of Scripture is not in any way going to come as a surprise uh, to any of you. Do you remember what we said about Luke last time round? We said he was a bit of a heavyweight historian. Do you remember he was, he was dedicated in the writing of this to a historical precision and exactness? So it doesn't really come as a surprise to see what he does. He, do you notice he, he begins this record of God's saving activity, guess what, with a historical reference. Do you see like a time marker, a chrono chronological marker? What does he say? He says, these things took place during the reign of Herod. Who's this? This is Herod the Great, isn't it? So this is a Roman appointed ruler in Judea who ruled roughly, I think I'm right in saying from about 37 BC through to about 4 BC. So it doesn't surprise you, does it? Historical reference. This happened. This is real, what we're dealing with at this moment. So that's not a surprise. Actually, more importantly, what I would ask you to do is to focus on the two individuals that are mentioned next to think about with me Zechariah and Elizabeth. In fact, can we put up verses 5 to 7 or look there? And what I want you to, to notice is indeed their godliness. So you have a married couple. Think about their godliness. You must have noticed it, did you? When Will read the section of Scripture, does the godliness of this couple not come out and gra grab you? There's certainly a few dimensions in the text to it, if you look at it with me. <laughs> Can we say their godly pedigree is there? Um, I'm not a, a I'm a free church minister, but I'm not a free church person in the sense that I was not born and brought up in the free church. And so when I came into the free church a bit later in life, I did used to chuckle a little bit at how some in the denomination speak about others. And you know that idea of, well, well they have good free church stock. <laughs> you know, that idea, you know, that they and their parents and their grandparents, it's a great thing in a sense. They, they can trace their lineage back a little bit, right? We know that sort of idea. In a sense, is this not similar? Like, what, what are we talking about Zechariah? Do you notice the stock, in a sense, is underlined? He's a priest. Oh, but yeah, it's also from the division of Abijah. And it's not just him. Do you notice Elizabeth too? She's from a priestly line. Do, do you see the pedigrees kind of held up for your attention? And then, do you notice they're standing before God. What is said about this married couple? Do you see? They are righteous. What's that? That's the idea of they positionally before God, all by his grace. They are correct before God. And then, what does that lead to 
in the text. Do you see it? There is a certain faithfulness from both sides of this marriage relationship. They are both pursuing, what's the word, blamelessness. Pursuing a, an obedience to God's word. So I, I am asking you, what do you think of Zechariah and Elizabeth? This is godliness with a capital G. In fact, it's just, it's all capitalized and underlined and highlighted, isn't it? This is godliness before you. And because of that, perhaps what Luke goes on to say next does come as a little bit of a shock, especially if there's any people in the room who have even an iota of sympathy with the prosperity gospel or any health and wealth type message. You're going to struggle here because what is said? I mean, this godly couple, what do you read? But they had no child. And something that is so often absolutely devastating, heartbreaking. But in what was, honestly, what was especially difficult in the ancient world, Zechariah and Elizabeth were quite simply unable to have children. They were elderly. They were childless. Now, there's a lot here in this section of Scripture. We've got to move reasonably quickly, but I, I think we just have to pause to draw out one application of this, don't we? Because do you not think here there is something about the Christian and disappointment? Something about the Christian and disappointment. What do we, what do we know? We are adept at calling the Christian life a path, aren't we? A journey. The Christian life is a road. We talk about things like that. But what is the reality? If you've been a, a Christian any length of time, you know this, that if the Christian life is a road, is a road littered with the potholes of disappointment. There's many people in this room who know that all too well. In the Christian life, even if as some pursuing godliness, there's the disappointments in, in career. Maybe it just didn't map out for us the way that we thought it was going to. And it isn't. Those promotions not opening up, those new opportunities not opening up. And there's disappointment. Look, there's disappointment in relationships for many in this place. And, and we actually can go further if we're going to be honest as a congregation. And there are disappointments in marriage and there's disappointments with children, and there's disappointments in our, our, our family situations. And so the question arises, what, what, what are we going to do with this? How are we going to deal as God's people with these things, right? Like, are we going to allow, are you going to allow the disappointments in life to draw you away from God in absolute frustration? Or more. Are you going to take those disappointments to God in trust? Because I, I'm asking you, what is it that, that God paints for you this morning? What is this portrait you have in Luke's gospel? Hey, think about Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age. They, no doubt, have gone through, I was going to say, year after year after year of disappointment. It's more than that, isn't it? Like for a couple in the ancient world, childless, they've gone through decades and decades of disappointment, and look at the portrait. What are they like? What is the word before you capitalized and highlighted? 
this is a couple who love God still. This is a couple who, who are living for him and serving God, living for his glory. You see it here, don't you? Godliness. Second term, though, is that of prayerfulness. Prayerfulness. Can I speak to you just for a moment about um, the, the idea of uh, 15 minutes of fame? We know that phrase, do we? The idea of 15 minutes of, of fame. Um, what do you think of the phrase? It, it, it's maybe a little bit antiquated, is it? I don't know if the students know the phrase, think of the phrase as being a bit dated. It seems maybe a little bit dated. 15 minutes of, of fame. It might sound dated, but the reality could not be any more pertinent and up to date. Isn't that right? 15 minutes with TikTok or YouTube or even some of the like talent shows that we get on our TVs, right? The idea of people being in the spotlight for a very short space of time could not be any more relevant to life in uh, the 21st century, right? Well, as we, you and I, consider now the main event, what is that? Zechariah going into the temple and seeing, beholding an angel. I need you to realize that in a sense, that's what we're dealing with you and I here. If you look at the text with me, do you notice what you're told? So Zechariah has been chosen by Lot to burn incense in the temple. You all got that in the reading, didn't you? What we need to appreciate right now is how incredibly special a moment that was. You ready for some of the statistics? So at the time, listen, at the time, there were literally thousands of priests that would work in the temple. So we are talking, I was reading about it this week, there are 18,000 priests who would serve. And they were split into divisions. Can you imagine 18,000 people? Split into divisions of 24, okay? And they would all work in different shift patterns in the temple courts. And what I want you to appreciate is that a priest, truth is, a priest in his whole lifespan would get one solitary opportunity to go into the holy place and to light and to burn that incense. Do you see what you're dealing with here? What is it? This is Zechariah's 15 minutes of fame, isn't it? This is his moment in the spotlight. Now, he's in for a bit of a surprise, don't you think? <laughs> he's going to, what? He's going to see an angel? And he's, he's going to be told he's going to have a child. But actually, what I want you to think about with me is the emphasis God gives you on prayer. Prayer. Indeed, this is what I want to do just now. I want to try and make two different points here from the text about prayer. One is broad, one is general that God gives us. The other one is a little bit more nuanced, a narrower point about prayer. So if you're with me, are you? What is the general point here about prayer? I want you to listen to it, please, for your encouragement, Christian friend. In this text, we see that your God holds the prayers of his people in such high regard. God holds your prayer in high esteem. Would you look at the text with me? Let's look at verse 8 to 13. What I want you to notice is just how often prayer is emphasized and mentioned here. So tick them off with me, will you? How often prayer is mentioned. So look at verse 9. So what is Zechariah doing, friends? He's lighting incense. Biblically speaking, what is incense? 
We, we know this, don't we? From Revelation 5, it was symbolic of the prayers of the people, the incense rising up to God, the prayers of the people rising up to God. So we've got that. What was Zechariah supposed to be doing as he lights the incense? Do you know? What he's supposed to be doing is praying at that very point. He lights the incense, but he, as a priest, is supposed to be praying on behalf of the people. Then look at verse 10. <laughs> What's going on outside? I think actually what we're dealing with here most likely is the evening sacrifice. That's the setting. And you have here multitudes of people. Again, thousands of people. And do you notice that what's happening outside is imitating what's happening inside? What are all of these thousands of people doing at this moment? They are praying. What are they doing at the evening sacrifice? They're praying, oh God, for the salvation of Israel. Do, do you see everything's about prayer? And then last, look at verse 13. So this angel appears, speaks to Zechariah, says that he will have a son. But look at that. He says that this son is in response to Zechariah's prayer. Do you see, as you have this portion of Scripture open, all of the arrows, everything is pointing to prayer, all of this as a response to prayer. Christian friend, this morning at St. Peter's, does God not speak to you in that? Because again, what do we talk about when we talk about prayer? Do you know what we often say that prayer is hard? It's hard work, it's hard graft, and it is, there's this... There's a reason, as I heard somebody else say this week, there's a reason why we call prayer a spiritual discipline. It's tough, isn't it? It's tough work. But what else can we add to that? That truth be told, there's many of us in the room, and it's been a long, long time since some of us have truly sat before God and poured our heart out in prayer. There is a widespread prayerlessness in, in the contemporary church. But for our encouragement, what does God remind you of here? He longs to hear you pray. God delights, even when it's really difficult and you're distracted, God delights when you persist and you try to pray. God takes what you say seriously. God loves that. God answers your prayer. So he holds it in high regard. That's the first thing. But there is a, a sort of, do you know, there's a nuanced point about prayer here. I, I think this is fascinating. And I'm going to turn it to you. So if you're struggling this morning, you're going to have to stay with me or I'll, I'll, I'll jump on you and I'll, I'll point you out. But what happens here? Come on, to the situation. Zechariah, an angel appears to Zechariah. Where? Do you notice on the right-hand side of the altar? This is the, the place of favor. And the angel appears. And the angel says, you are going to have a son, John, in response to your prayer. Now, here's my question for you. Do not shout out the answer, please. Which prayer? What prayer? How are you reading it? Are you, are you thinking that Zechariah, as he has been burning this incense that Zechariah has been in there pleading with God for a child? Is that what you think? I, I don't think that's what it is. First of all, think about what we said. Like Zechariah is supposed to be praying for the salvation of Israel. 
for the forgiveness of Israel as part of the evening sacrifice. That's one thing. Second thing, look at verse 18. Can we put up verse 18? You know the story. He's promised a child, and what happens? Zechariah, what, a child? He doesn't believe it. Why not? Because Zechariah seems to have entirely given up. He's an old man. He's given up on the reality of ever having a child. He doesn't believe it. Do you see what is happening here? Here, God seems to be answering a prayer that Zechariah prayed long, long, long time ago. God is, isn't that wonderful? God is answering a prayer that Zechariah, by this stage, has entirely given up on. Isn't that wonderful for us Christian friends? Because honestly, truth is, you, many of us, we're in the same boat. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're in the same boat. There are circumstances, and I think actually more often there are people, aren't there, that in years gone by we have prayed for, you know, people that we've worked with and people we've met that we don't even know now, oh, but our loved ones that aren't believing in, oh, years gone by, we've been pleading with God that, that these people would be saved, that their lives would be turned, that they would see and understand Jesus. And what has happened? Do you know what's happened? What seems to have happened? Nothing. Nothing. We've pleaded with God for their salvation, and there seems to have been no answer, or that he has said no. And isn't this marvelously encouraging because what does this tell us what are we reminded here we're reminded that it may yet be that god by grace in his goodness that he answers those prayers those prayers that we might already have given up on prayers that we prayed long ago isn't that an incentive for us Prayer is hard, it's difficult, it's a discipline, but look, our God is good, don't we go? Isn't this an incentive to intercede for others, an incentive to pray? So we see a godliness here, we see a prayerfulness. A third thing, though, we see is repentance, don't we? Repentance. And if you're following it, you can see what we've done thus far, we've been right down into the text, and we've been zoomed right into Zechariah and Elizabeth, haven't we? And what all of this means for their circumstances, their promised a child. But I think if we do that, um, uh, that, that cheesy Google Earth thing, where we zoom back out and we view this from an eternal perspective, I think we can all see that there's actually something big going on here, beyond Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? Indeed, we can see that there's something big going on here. If we come to this from the perspective of the rest of the Bible, I think you know what I mean. What do you know if you know Scripture? What do you know? If God, think about it, if God grants a barren woman a child, from the rest of Scripture, what do we know? If God does that in grace, we know that that child is going to be special. You know that? You can fill in all the blanks. Can you? Hannah with Samuel, a special child. Manoah with Samson, a special child. What's the obvious example if we're talking about elderly parents? Abraham, Sarah, Isaac. Do, do, do you see? So what do we know as we're reading this? We know, wait a minute, there's going to be a, a child 
for Zechariah and Elizabeth, what God is about to do something absolutely remarkable, but what is he going to do? Well, the key, please hear this, if you get nothing else, the key to understanding this is to realize that as this angel appears to Zechariah, that the language that the angel uses is taken straight from the Old Testament prophecy of Malachi. I want everyone to get it, young and old, okay? So as the angel appears, the language that the angel uses is straight from the Old Testament book of Malachi. Can you trace it with me just for a second, please? Genesis 3, what happens? Come on, God begins in Genesis 3 to speak of a savior. God speaks and promises a savior. And then the rest of the Old Testament, that gradually unfolds, doesn't it? Through this covenantal framework, more and more of who the savior will be. Then we get to the intertestamental period, don't we? So the bit between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what happens there? The reality is nothing happens there. There is, <laughs> for years, radio silence from God, isn't there? So at this point, when Zechariah is in the temple, listen to this, for 400 years or thereabout, there has been no revelatory word from God. Now, here's the point. I get the point. What was the last thing that God had said? How does the Old Testament end? The Old Testament ends with Malachi's promise, one day God is going to work. What does Malachi promise? One day a forerunner to this Savior will rise up. Now, not just someone who is going to announce the coming of a Christ or the Messiah. No, but actually one day this forerunner is actually going to prepare things. He's going to prepare the land, but wait for it. He's going to prepare people for the coming of this Messiah. Now, we can only imagine what Zechariah's face looked like. This man steeped in the Old Testament, and he hears, what? I'm going to have a child, and he's going to be the forerunner to the Christ. But one question remains, doesn't it? What would this forerunner do? He is to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. How would he do it? Well, let's look at it together. Look at verse 14 to 17. So this is the angel speaking about John. Verse 14 to 17. Can you see it there? Is it up? We have it there. What, what do you see? What's said about John? I think we can see that <laughs> John has one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New. Is he not the sort of hinge between the two? John the Baptist? You know, in Old Testament terms, do you notice that what's promised is he's going he's to be a prophet in the, the likes of Elijah? And do you notice that he will be consecrated and set apart for this prophetic ministry by not being permitted to drink any alcohol at all? Do you see he's got one foot firmly in the Old Testament? What about the New Testament? Do, do you notice allusions there to the new covenant? That he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and even from from his mother's womb. Did you see he's got one foot in both camps in a sense. He's the hedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's wonderful and it's beautiful. What I want you to notice is verse 16. Critical phrase here. Can you find it? There's repetition. So how is he going to prepare people? 
for the coming of the Christ, there's this word turn. Do you see it? He will turn people to the Lord. This morning at St. Peter's, I wonder if you see the significance of that. What you have behind me on the screen is a standard biblical phrase for repentance. How is this figure, John the Baptist, going to prepare people for the coming of the Christ? Well, the first word of his ministry will indicate how John meant to go on. Do we know what the first word of John the Baptist's ministry was? Matthew 3, verse 2. He would cry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What is the appropriate response to the coming of the Christ? And God's word shows us here it is repentance from sin. Now, because of that, I want to speak to you in here. If you are yet to follow Jesus Christ, if you're yet to be born again, now, let's play the odds. There's an expression not often used by free church ministry or ministers. But let's play the odds. Look at around you. Look at the size of the hall. Consider that this is going out live. Consider it stays up there on YouTube for all eternity. What's the odds? Some even in this room just now are, are not following Jesus Christ. Don't know Jesus. Now, if that's you, honestly, it, it may be that, you know, just perhaps you're in here desperate, but desperate actually, fundamentally, to be right with God. And maybe even, like, wait, there's a step further, maybe even you recognize that only Jesus can do that. But as you sit here, you're like, well, what do I do? I long to be right with God. What do I do? Can I tell you what the answer is not? The answer is not, well, just let Jesus into your heart. That's not the answer. The answer is not just to glibly sort of hear it, but it's not the answer. Just invite Jesus in. God, as much as it makes me sound like a fire and brimstone type preacher, God gives us language. God tells us what to do. And what does he say? He says, repent of your sin. What does that mean? The language of metanoia. What does it mean? It means you need to have an entire change of mind. More than that. A change of life, change of heart. What you need to do is look at your sin in absolute hatred. Like to see your sin, to see actually what it is. This is an offense against God to look at that abhor your sin, but more to turn and turn to look to God, to look to Christ for forgiveness. What is the appropriate response to the coming of the Christ? What do we see here? It is to repent. And if you do that, and even if you do it today, if you repent and turn to Jesus Christ, the reality is, and it's so beautiful, the reality is today, by God's grace, you will be made right with him. And today, you might even know this. What does the angel say? You might know this joy for many that this angel talks about. So we see godliness, don't we? Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we see prayerfulness, and we see 
repentance. But the last thing, the fourth thing, and most briefly, faith. Faith. Uh, If you had never, speculate for a moment, if you had never read this portion of Scripture before, and I know you have, but if you had never read this portion of Scripture, speculate, what might you expect to happen next? So we have Zechariah, right? In the holy place. What have we said? He's a godly guy, like this old, he's got gray hair to match his gentleness. He's an old godly man, and he's longed for a child. And an angel has just said, well, an angel has just said, you're going to have a child. More than that, he's going to be used by God for great purposes. What might you expect to happen? You might expect him to leave the temple rejoicing. Don't you think there's going to be some dancing here and clapping and wonder and worship? You might even expect the text of scripture to jump right down to verse 24 and to Elizabeth's response, where she's thankful to God for this child that's in the womb. That's what you might expect. And the reality is that's not what you've got. Do we not have this uncomfortable middle section where Zechariah displays doubt? I mean, as maybe not enough. Just disbelief at God and God's word. Now, because of his incredible lack of faith, Zechariah is given an affliction. And because you know this story so well, everybody knows what the affliction was. Yes? So, was he deaf? Maybe? Verse 62 tells you that later on the people have to gesticulate in order to communicate with Zechariah. Just throw that out there. But we know that that's not the central point. What was the affliction? At this point, his voice is taken away. Isn't it? And Zechariah is made mute. Now, I want to close. I want us to end this sermon. Just you and I, just looking at that and wondering why. Like, he's, why his voice? What is going on? Why is, this, why is this taken away from him? I just want to, look, it's bullet points. And in just a word, three things to say about it. One is this. This silence is a sign from God. I think every one of us, that's the obvious thing to say. When Will came up and read this, or you read it before you came to church this morning, as you did that, you thought about Gideon's fleece, a sign, didn't you? Or Ahaz, this time of year, getting towards Christmas, that sign of a child from Isaiah. You realize it was like, now think about it though. Zechariah is made mute as promised that he might know that that promise of a child would come to pass. So it is a sign from God, isn't it? There's such grace in that. Second thing, there's only three. The second thing is also an act of discipline, don't you think? It's a chastisement. I'm sure you would agree with that. If we could put up verse 20, I want you to read verse 20 yourselves and feel the the tone of it. Zechariah's disbelief. What does the angel say? Read it. And what tone do you think? Behold, you will be silent. You will be unable to speak until the day that these things take, take place because you did not believe my words. 
Do you not sense when you read that there's a displeasure here from whom? Displeasure from the angel? No, no. There's a displeasure here from, from God. Zechariah is silenced, I think, so that in the future he might not be so slow. Slow to believe. Slow to obey God's word. So it's a sign, it's chastisement. The third thing which is most pertinent, I think this silence is a prompt for you, Christian friends. I really do. This is a prompt, the silence for you and for me. Um, most of you were, were at St. Peter's last week. Um, I asked you to do something in this, the, the, the sermon in the morning last week. Not homework, no maths homework. I asked you for all the sermons in this sermon series and for every single time that you encounter Luke for the rest of your life, I asked you to remember the purpose of Luke's gospel, didn't I? Do you remember me asking you that? Do you remember the purpose of Luke's gospel? He writes and he says, these things are written to you, to Theophilus, to you, that you might have certainty this gospel given to us that we might have greater assurance about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in light of that, do you not see why this section about Zechariah is written and recorded and in the way it is? Do you know what you're supposed to do? This is supposed to prompt in your heart greater faith. Do you know what you're supposed to do just now? You're supposed to shake your head at Zechariah, aren't you? You're supposed to look and say, that's ridiculous. You're supposed to look at Zechariah, shake your head and think, what folly, how foolish it is to disbelieve the promise of God in regard to salvation. And from there, you're supposed to place your trust, having read this, and to place your trust all the more in Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Christian and here this morning, I implore you as your minister to do that right now, to rest yourself, to look at Christ in the eyes of faith, Rest yourself all the more in Jesus Christ. Because you know, don't you, this is just the beginning. Okay, a forerunner's coming. Who comes after him? Oh, the Christ came. And what has he done for you, Christian friend? You can see it, can't you? That in Jesus, all of this prayer that this multitude outside the temple are offering, they're all crying out for salvation. In Jesus Christ, that prayer answered. In Jesus Christ, this evening sacrifice that they're all there to observe, in Jesus Christ, hanging soon on a cross, atoning for sin, in Jesus Christ, that evening sacrifice is fulfilled. In Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sin that this whole temple system existed to point to, in Jesus Christ, that forgiveness is won and provided. Christian friend, look at Jesus Christ today in faith. You see, don't you? He is the one who has for you today. He has provided reconciliation with God. So when we see that, yeah, let's ensure there is repentance. But let's ensure that we look to Jesus Christ today for you agree, don't you, as a church? He alone is worthy. And he alone is worthy of all of our worship, our adoration. He alone is worthy of our praise. Friends, let us bow. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you so much for this portion of Scripture. Oh, Lord God, we see as we look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, our deficiency as we look at this elderly couple. Lord God, we, we confess that there is not the zeal within us there ought to be. Uh, Lord, there is neither the, the prayerfulness to, but Lord, we thank you that through repentance and faith, we are covered in Christ Jesus. As Will reminded the children, in Christ there is righteousness. You look not upon us in our wickedness, but you look upon him, the one who has done all things for our reconciliation.